and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Elizabeth Katz, Associate Professor of Law at Washington University in St. Louis School of Law. We will discuss her article, Racial and Religious Democracy, Identity and Equality in Mid-Century Courts, which will be published in the Stanford Law Review. So welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. It's actually my first time on the podcast, so I'm glad to have my first time here with you. Oh my God, I'm I'm thrilled! I I couldn't be happier. Um, so I I really enjoyed reading your paper, and I actually read it twice. I liked it so much, um, and I, I love the story that you tell in the paper, which I didn't know anything about, and I found really compelling. Um, but for listeners, I thought it might be really helpful. Uh, if you could kind of situate them in how the relationship between race and religion in the kind of the early 20th century was meaningfully different uh, than than it is today, specifically in New York City, which is sort of the locus of of the story that you tell in the paper. Yeah, thanks, Brian. That's a really impart, important context for the paper overall because the paper's really calling for greater attention to how racial and religious identities intersect in ways that have influenced the law historically and do continue to influence how the law has developed today. And so if we look back at New York City in the early 20th century, what we would see is, first of all, a city with roughly half the population Catholic, one-third Jewish, and the remainder Protestant, and those religious identities really correlating with nationality. So this is a period where the idea of ethnicity is really developing, and there's really a lot kind of up for grabs about what identity means and how it matters socially and in the law. And part of what I'm tracing in the paper is how people in real time are reacting to local, national, and international politics that change the salience of different facets of identity and change um, why the correlation between racial and religious identity matter. So how, I mean, where did that kind of racial and religious makeup in New York City come from? And and was it a relatively novel thing during the period that you talk about? I mean, to have a city that's so heavily Catholic and so heavily Jewish as well um, was, you know, how did that work in the context of, or how did that happen in the context of the history of New York City? And why was it so important in the early 20th century? Yeah, so this is deeply intertangled with the history of immigration, New York City is definitely an outlier in many respects, though some other northeastern cities like Boston um, and others had different uh, proportions of different religious groups relative to the rest of the country. And this really mattered because it influenced the politics on the ground level. And also, though New York City is uh, kind of an outlier in a lot of its demographics, it's still really important to think about because a lot of the lobbying and uh, kind of discussion that happened on a nationwide stage originated in New York City. So we have a really influential Catholic diocese there. We have the leading Jewish groups. We have really important Protestant groups, the headquarters of the NAACP, etc. So although New York City is pretty unusual in some ways, it had disproportionate 
influence in the law and political discussions. So your paper focuses primarily on the family law and the family court system in New York City. Just to situate listeners, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the kind of structure of the New York family courts and why they were so important during the period of time that you're talking about. Sure. So the paper really picks up in 1933 and 1934, and there's two reasons for that. One is there was a big change to the organization of the New York City Family Court that year. Previously, the children's court was one court, and then there was a separate, actually, criminal court for uh, other kinds of family conflict, like non-support of wives and children. And in 1933, the New York State Legislature combine these courts into one unified family court. And one of the many reasons that mattered is the judges who had been uh, sitting on the children's court and who were transferred over to this new court didn't particularly like it. And so they mostly retired really quickly. And that coincided with the same year that Mayor LaGuardia began his mayorship in New York City. So he was able to use this basically... um, group of empty seats on the family court to craft a new kind of bench that really incorporated people who had been left out by earlier mayoral administrations in judgeships. Well, so LaGuardia plays a really important role in the story that you tell. I wonder if you could say a little something about sort of what was unique about Mayor LaGuardia and how and why he was focused, among other things, on changing the New York City family court system. Yeah, so I think one thing people often don't know about LaGuardia's history and goals is that he was very outspoken on the international stage against what was happening in Nazi Germany. So he, when he came to power, that was also coinciding with the time that Germany was increasing, increasingly passing laws that discriminated against Jews and other minorities there. And LaGuardia recognized that one of the ways he could get a lot of publicity um, and challenge what was happening in Germany was through his own control over city posts in New York. So he recognized that by having a more diverse slate of candidates for positions in the city, he could get some publicity that made it seem even more uh, harmful and unacceptable what was happening in Germany. And so he strategically picked people who would really stand um, and work in this kind of role. So what role did religion and I guess almost by proxy race play in the sort of work and staffing of the New York City family court system during the period you discuss? Yeah, so there was a long history of religion being really important in child welfare services in New York City, and therefore necessarily in the, in the family court as well. In the paper, I go back to the early 19th century to kind of briefly catch the reader up on the system that had been developing for over a century. The, the short version is that Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish organizations had created separate child welfare institutions for foster care and adoption and 
other kinds of services and to protect their interests in New York and some other cities, they were able to get laws that required religious matching of children in need of services to these, uh, to these institutions. And when New York City, or rather New York State, adopted juvenile probation in 1903, it followed and seemed completely un uncontroversial at the time that they would require religious matching of probation officers to juvenile delinquents. So by the time LaGuardia's judges joined the bench in the 30s, there were decades of, um, there, was, there had been decades of this practice of matching children to probation officers by religion pursuant to law. And there was developing a, an internal court policy of doing this by race as well. And so because, um, and I'm happy to say more about some of the particular characters, because of the uniquely uh, diverse judges that LaGuardia put on the family court, this practice of identity matching started to seem questionable, even though decades of prior children's court judges hadn't seen anything wrong with it. Yeah, I'd love for you to talk more about sort of the particular individuals and sort of what role they played in the changes LaGuardia was pushing. I mean, in particular, you know, you talk about this initial wave of appointments that he made where he sort of both satisfied, but also in a weird way, kind of even initially sort of subverted the expectation that judicial appointments to the family court would be sort of distributed among the religious groups. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that kind of first set of appointees and why they were important. Sure. So the first part of the paper, I think of it almost like a bench biography of this really unique and impressive trial court, which I think is really missing from the literature, thinking about how the experiences and identities of trial court judges can be so influential. And so I use LaGuardia's creation of this bench to really illustrate that. So for instance, I talk about how his first trio of appointments to the court included a, a Republican who was Protestant, a Democrat who was Catholic, and a socialist who was Jewish. And that was not by a coincidence. He was really making a point that he was picking based on merit. And so that would include different political parties and different religions. Now, of course, there was also some strategy. He wanted to be reelected, but he was really sh uh, shifting the kinds of identity facets that would matter for a politically savvy campaign. And then I go on to talk about several of the other judges who were very influential for decades to come. So one was Justine Wise Polaire, who was the daughter of America's most prominent rabbi and a very distinguished lawyer in her own right a graduate of Yale Law School, very prominent on uh, workers' comp and employment kinds of issues before she was appointed to the court. And I argue that one of the reasons LaGuardia selected her in particular, even though her background wasn't a particularly good fit for this court, was because of the symbolism of choosing a prominent rabbi's daughter to join the bench at the same time that in Nazi Germany, Jews were being forcibly removed from the bench. So I argue that that was one of his symbolic stands. The judge who turned out to be his most controversial appointee was named Herbert O'Brien. And O'Brien was a really influential Catholic lawyer 
who seemed like not a not necessarily a controversial choice at the time, but then in the context of World War II, became a lightning rod because he supported notorious anti-Semite father Charles Coughlin um, and spoke very openly um, on an isolationist kind of stance that rubbed a lot of people in New York City the wrong way. Um, And then probably the most significant of all of LaGuardia's appointees was Jane Boleyn, the country's first ever Black woman judge, and he appointed her in 1939. So these are just kind of a taste of the really unique judges that LaGuardia put on the bench. And in addition to having a lot of religious ties, um, Jane Boleyn and others were members of the NAACP. Justine Polaire and others were members of the American Jewish Congress, which did a lot of civil rights work for uh, from a Jewish perspective. So these people had really strong ties to different communities, and that that was really important for their identities, but also set up some conflicts among the judicial colleagues. So I, mean, I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about some of those people, like in particular, Justine Polier, um, you know, who had a really interesting sort of political role, it seemed to me, from your paper as well, given her her sort of uh, her role within the American Jewish Congress and how she thought about racial politics in a really kind of um, engaged and forward-thinking kind of way. I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about who she was, where she was coming from, and how she saw her role on the court. Yeah, she is amazing. So her father, as I was alluding to, was Stephen S. Wise, a really prominent rabbi and one of the co-founders of the NAACP. So she was brought up in a household that was very attuned to racial and religious uh, discrimination and also how to push back against that. And I think also really importantly, she ended up marrying, actually while she was on the bench, uh, a man named Shad Polaire. Actually, when she was appointed, she was Justine Weiss Tolan. Um, But her new partner, Shad Polaire was also a really engaged proponent of civil rights who uh, was a member of the Legal Defense Fund in the NAACP. He uh, worked for the NLRB. They had very similar kinds of priorities and goals, and they worked together as this amazing team on a number of different initiatives throughout their lives. And and what about Jane Boleyn as well? I mean, she seems like a fascinating person too, who had a really huge impact on on the court and on the African American community in New York City as well. Yeah, so her appointment was celebrated across the country. There's amazing coverage in black newspapers just rejoicing at how this distinguished black woman was able to finally become the first to become a judge. And she had a really significant status within the local Black community in Harlem as well. So I've read countless newspaper articles about her from the time, and she's just constantly supporting different initiatives and serving in leadership roles in the NAACP and taking on other uh, kinds of roles that were really high profile and important. 
So could you talk a little bit about the investment of the different religious communities in the family courts during the period you discuss? I mean, why were the family courts so important? And in particular, how did the sort of religious apportionment have a negative, how and why did the kind of religious apportionment have a negative effect on some groups, especially African-Americans? Yeah, so originally the reason that the religious uh, influence in the family court was a problem along racial lines had to do with the lack of services available for Black children. So if you think about how there had been a century, more than a century, of building up institutions along religious lines in the city, that was during a period when very few residents of New York City were African-American. That changed very quickly in the late 1920s and early 1930s. And Jewish and Catholic organizations could basically say, look, none of these new residents of New York City are Jewish or, or excuse me, they weren't Jewish or Catholic because nearly all African-Americans in this period in New York City were Protestant. So the full weight of providing services for these children fell to Protestant groups and they just did not meet the demand whatsoever. If you think back to the numbers we were talking about earlier, it was really a relatively small portion of the city that was even Protestant. So perhaps it would have been hard for them to meet the full demand, but they also didn't really seem to try very hard to meet it either. So one of the initial uh, reasons that people pointed out that it was a problem to have religiously affiliated child welfare services was that vulnerable Black children just weren't getting served at all. So that was that was a major problem that the judges recognized. They actually agreed about that, but they weren't sure how to fix it. So, I mean, it seemed like in a lot of ways, there was almost like a sort of uneasy alliance or rough alliance between Jewish groups and African-American groups, but there was significant tension, especially with sort of Catholic interests in relation to the structure of the court and its operation. C could, could you talk a little bit about that tension and that alliance and sort of where it came from and why it mattered? Sure. And that's where the focus in the paper on probation officers in particular helps make this really concrete. So as I was suggesting, it was pretty much uncontroversial for several decades that probation officers were matched to juvenile delinquents by religion. And yet by the late 1930s, this starts to seem like a problem. So the question is, well, why? And I argue in the paper that there are a few reasons. One reason is simply the, sh the change in demographics on the bench. There are more Jewish judges on the bench looking at this policy and thinking, hmm, are we really comfortable with our institution categorizing our children and our probation officers by religion? And keep in mind, this is against the backdrop of what's happening in Germany and spreading throughout Europe. It seems increasingly dangerous for a government to consider religious identity and treat people differently on that basis. So it's really the Jewish judges who at first start to push back and say, we don't think that religious identity should really be that important. It shouldn't matter at all for the selection or the participation of judges. 
And sure, we have to recognize that the law still says religious matching is required to the extent practicable in the probation statute, but let's not take that any further than we absolutely have to. But at the same time, the Catholic judges and prominent leaders in the Catholic community see probation as a way to actually enhance the religious participation and practice of children. So they are actually proposing ways to strengthen the role of religion and probation in the same years that the Jewish judges are becoming increasingly uncomfortable with it. And as there's an increasing number of Black judges who join the bench, the Black judges mostly join the Jewish judges, seeing a kind of possible slippery slope or analogy between thinking about religion and thinking about race that makes them deeply uncomfortable as well. Mm. I mean, it seemed like this this tension between religious identities played an important role in adoption as well and how sort of social services in New York thought about the placement of children and the interests of children in kind of contrast to or in relation to the interests of different religious groups. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And adoption law is another area I'm really interested in and I'm doing some research on now. One thing that's important that's different about the adoption context is there we're not thinking about public employees. So there's kind of an extra angle involved in the probation context because we're talking about court staff being treated differently based on religion and not merely the children. So there's two ways that people who want more or less religion and probation can go at this. They can think of it either as a problem because of segregation of children, or they can think about it as arguably employment discrimination. And so that feeds into the different strategies that the judges considered when they wanted to challenge this practice. So it seems like from your paper, there were some areas in which Jewish and African-American groups were relatively successful in encouraging and benefiting from reforms in the family court system, but other areas in which they were less successful. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of the successes and failures and what you think sort of caused that to happen. Yeah, so that really moves us more into the post-World War II phase. So I talk about in the paper how during and immediately after World War II, there was a significant increase in anti-discrimination laws at local, state, and federal levels. And New York, again, was really kind of disproportionately influential and pathbreaking in this space. For instance, in 1938, New York passed a constitutional amendment prohibiting discrimination in civil rights. And these same judges that I've been talking about were, again, really prominent participants for and against a lot of these changes. And then we get into this post-war period where there is now state-level anti-discrimination laws that didn't previously exist. And these laws are on the books alongside the old law requiring religious matching and probation to the extent practicable. So now the judges have this conundrum of if we can't discriminate based on race or religion, but we have a law requiring us to consider religion, how does that fit? 
how do we accomplish both of, both of these goals? And predictably, uh, the judges take quite different stances on this. Now, I talk about in the paper how the challenge to racial discrimination uh, or rather racial matching and probation was actually easier because racial matching was never actually a law in New York. It was just a court policy. So the way that played out is Jane Bolin and another really prominent civil rights leader who LaGuardia appointed to the family court, Hubert Delaney, basically went on a publicity campaign to the Black newspapers saying racial matching in probation is Jim Crow. This is a Jim Crow practice. It shouldn't be happening. It's harmful to the employees. It's harmful to the children. And it needs to stop. And at first, the presiding judge and chief probation officer refused to change the policy because they thought it was beneficial to have racial matching. But the pressure and actually threat of a lawsuit, since now there were anti-discrimination laws they could use that hadn't been there previously, ultimately persuaded the presiding judge to stop racial matching. So what about the the Catholic Church and its goals during the period? I mean, why specifically was the Catholic Church so invested in the family court system? What role did Herbert O'Brien play in sort of acting as a mouthpiece for the Catholic Church? And, and in particular, one thing I thought was really interesting in the paper was sort of the intersection of kind of Catholic interests and a sort of broader anti-communist message or campaign in the United States at the time. Yeah. So after World War II, when we start getting into some of the Cold War politics, there's this idea across the United States that public religiosity is a kind of counterpoint to godless communism and the extent to which people kind of agree with that posture really varies also along religious lines. So this is particularly embraced by a lot of Catholics, including, again, uh, prominent Catholics in New York, like Cardinal Spellman, who was a really prominent discussant in this process. And this really makes them, I think, feel more justified um, and energized to push for greater religiosity in the family court context. So for instance, the law going back to 1903 was only about juvenile delinquents, but the Catholic justices proposed that the other parts of the family court jurisdiction having to do with adults should also be subject to religious matching if there was some reason for probation to be instituted. So they're looking for ways to expand it to new contexts, and they also start saying that the probation officers should be required to make sure their charges are actually practicing the religion. They want to go beyond just the religious matching. And this seems really justifiable to them. They think that this is protecting religion. It's for the good of the children, that religion will help them uh, rehabilitate. It's, it fits into kind of a worldview of how important religion is in in the welfare and upbringing of children. Mm. Well, so Elizabeth, in in closing, I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the legacy of this 
sort of religious investment in the family courts? I mean, to what extent do we still see any of it resonating in the New York City family courts today? And how can if how how can the story that you tell in this paper inform our thinking more broadly about the relationship between race, religion, and family law in the United States? So this law is actually still technically on the books, but from what I've been told, it's never enforced anymore. But I think to your broader points, we see all the time how religion is still an extremely powerful and controversial force in figuring out for instance, school vouchers, or, I mean, there's just so many examples, it's hard to know where to start. You mentioned adoption earlier. That's a really controversial area where religion is informing how a lot of the law is operating on the ground, but arguably in practice discriminating against people on the basis of different identity facets. So I think this paper, or I hope this paper, really encourages people to think more about the the long-standing nature of this really difficult challenge where what one group is seeing as religious protection is experienced by other groups as discrimination. And there's just so many contexts where that's true. And I also hope that the paper encourages people to think more about trial court judges' identities, since I think that that's really been overlooked in a lot of the scholarship. And Going back to earlier in our conversation, also the fact that you can't really understand, I think, the history of the racial, the movement for race-based civil rights without thinking about religion. And you can't really understand the Establishment Clause without thinking about the racial connections. Because in the years that a lot of the canonical cases were being argued and decided, race and religion were not these really distinct separate categories. People had understood themselves as having both a race and a religion, and they saw that there were different intersecting legal approaches to accomplishing goals where they could emphasize one identity facet or the other. So we really need to look at establishment clause cases and civil rights cases together to understand how the mid-20th century, all of these things were up for grabs and mixed together. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Elizabeth. I really enjoyed this paper. I hope listeners will check it out. And congratulations on publishing it in the Stanford Law Review. Thanks so much, Brian. I really enjoyed talking to you about it. Everything they read in the papers about us cruddy JDs. So that's what we give them. Something to believe in. Hey, you! Who, me, Officer Krupke? Yeah, you! Give me one good reason for not dragging you down to the station house, you punk! Dear kindly Sergeant Krupke, you gotta understand, it's just our bringing up key that gets us out of hand. Our mothers all are junkies, our fathers all are drunks. Golly Moses, naturally we're punks. Gee, Officer Krupke, we're very upset. We never had the love that every child ought to get. We ain't no delinquents, we're misunderstood. Deep down inside us, there is good. There is good, there is good, there is good, there is untapped. 
Yeah. 